Every leader has a strategy. Executing on that strategy is the challenge. If you want to learn how to effectively achieve what you've set out to accomplish, then this show is for you. Gain keen insights and listen in as leaders share their stories and challenges. Soar Vision Group and the Baldridge Foundation welcome you to Leader Dialogue Radio. Hello, everyone. I'm Duffy Dixon. Welcome to Leader Dialogue, brought to you by Soar Vision Group and the Baldridge Foundation. We're really happy to all be back in the studio together. Joining me is Ben Sawyer. He is the Chief Executive Officer of Soar Vision Group. He has more than 30 years of executive leadership experience, and Ben launched the Soar Vision Group to help align people with purpose and to achieve exceptional results. Next to him is Lisa Council. She is the Chief Commercial Officer for Soar. She comes to them with more more than two decades of clinical leadership and clinical informatics experience. She spent 19 years before that at the McKesson Corporation. And a big welcome to our guest this week, Dr. Kehlani Dunsmore. Dr. Dunsmore is an educator, researcher, literacy expert, professor, and program developer. She is doctorally trained and focused on grant development and deployment of education and community of excellence initiatives. This is a really exciting thing this year, Ben. We are going to do more of uh, talking about topics, and, and, and Dr. Dunsmore's perfect to kick this off. Yeah, absolutely. So for our listeners, welcome. Hope everyone's New Year is well underway. Uh, hard to believe they were already in February. Crazy. Amazing <laughs> how fast it has gone. So, Does that happen when we get older? Is that what that... <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> you can... had to bring up age on our so first time sorry. back together. So sorry. <laughs> so for our listeners, uh, we are really excited to have uh, Kaylani Dunsmore on. Uh, Dr. Dunsmore is a uh, SOAR partner. Uh, SOAR Vision Group is is our company, as Duffy has, has said. And she uh, is the senior advisor for our education sector, as well as communities of excellence, which you're going to hear more about. It's the essentially the challenges cross-sector that occur in communities, particularly with a diversification of the population. So homelessness, food insecurity, literacy, all the kinds of things that everybody is, is aware of. So uh, Kehlani is a leader in the industry in this, and we're absolutely thrilled to have her on board. Um, you can learn a little bit more about Kehlani if you go on to the leaderdialogue.com site. And remember, dialogue is spelled in that web address, D-I-A-L-O-G-U-E. Um, and if you go into the uh, About section, you'll see the various advisors and, and uh, Dr. Dunsmore is in there. So, Kehlani, welcome. We're so glad to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much. So, Kehlani, um, you and I have had a lot of conversations over the years about the start and trajectory of your career, which has been really fascinating. Can you provide just kind of a high-level summary of that for the listeners so they understand your your background, kind of what is you know what has been a passion point for you in terms of uh, what's been directing your career and that sort of thing? That would be great. Sure. I always start by letting people know, really, I'm a teacher at heart. Um, I started out as an elementary teacher, uh, and then I became a middle school teacher, and it was really as a middle school teacher where I had all these kids who were kind of on the margins, um, kids who were struggling with reading, struggling with writing, some were reading at a second grade level. And as a teacher, I mean, my passion is really to help those kids who are on the margins, whether they're on the margins because of economic issues or family structure issues or, you know, really struggling academically. We want all of our kids to be successful and have hope and have a future. And, but when you see kids who are 12, 13, 14 years old, 
and you know they're so far from reading on grade level they start to lose heart they lose hope they they certainly become disengaged from the system um, and so, you know, my passion really, you know, it was at the heart of thinking about as a teacher working with kids, how do I help and understand these kids? And so as a teacher, I began to take coursework. I ended up with a Ph.D. Um, I've worked at uh, federal research centers, university centers as a faculty. I've been a foundation director um, working at nonprofits. I was at the National Council of Teachers of English um, uh, and associate director of the National Center for Literacy Education. But, you know, really at its heart, it's not about programs or organizations, it's really thinking about those kids. Those kids are on the margins, and how do we as a society, as a school, as organizations, as a community, how do we ensure that we're creating opportunities so all of our kids can read and write at the kind of level of sophistication and expertise that gives them hope, gives them potential, gives them opportunities, and gives them a future. And that, that's really my passion, is those kids on the margin and creating systems that work for those kids. Well. Those children and, your, and their parents are glad that you have that passion, as as we are. There's a couple clarifying questions, uh, Kaylani, that I wanted to ask you about. How pervasive is the problem of literacy, and is it getting better or worse as the population changes? So those are kind of loaded questions, so let me unpack them a little bit, um, because one of the things people often do is they look and say, oh my goodness, you know, we had almost 100% literacy at the turn of the last century in the 1900s, and now we've got this massive literacy problem. Um, but one of the things we need to understand is that the expectations for what successful reading and writing have changed dramatically. So certainly we have a changing demographic. We have you know, we have uh, communities that used to be monolingual are so suddenly multilingual, and they're going, oh, my goodness, how do we deal with this literacy issue? You know, we have, we have immigrant populations, but, you know, this country has always had immigrants. I mean, my, right. my great-grandparents came from Poland. Um, my great-great-great-grandparents and on the other side were Irish and Scottish. Um, we've always been a nation of immigrants, um, and so communities, though, often wrestle with it because it's new coming in. So we certainly have changing demographics. But, but partly what we are, are dealing with is the changing expectations for what the kinds of literacy kids need to be successful in this society. And so it's not like 50 years ago where you could graduate and become middle class because you worked in a factory, as all my grandparents did. Mm -hmm. um, we really have high levels of very sophisticated literacy practices, reading and writing that you need, even just to go in the skill trades. And so part of this issue around is this a new problem um, it's not that it's a new problem. We have, we have new challenges because we have very high-level goals. Certainly communities are facing new challenges as they see changing demographics. But, but what you asked is, is this new, is this different? It is maybe for some communities. But, but what we are recognizing is we've got very high levels of, of literacy expectations that we need to have for kids. And so, you know, as I think about my own career and the evolution of it, um, we're really looking at asking um, kids to do things that are very sophisticated um, and very high quality. And they're things we want kids to be able to do. Um, but, but certainly, um, as we think about over time, how pervasive is it? Um, we certainly know when we look at the, um, the NAEP scores, we look at you know, international assessments, our kids score pretty, pretty poorly. There's, there's only slight increases in where we've been in terms of reading and writing. Um, and certainly, I think there's about 24 states now that have third grade reading laws on the books because, you know, unfortunately and very, um, it's a really uh, sort of scary that you can take third graders and say if they're not reading on grade level at third grade, they have a higher likelihood 
uh, to be incarcerated or to be dropouts, um, to have low income um, wage earning potential. So you look at if you're not in grade level at third grade, there's a lot of very negative consequences for that. And so this is an issue that, you know, that the nation as a whole and certainly states are tackling in very concerted effort. Yeah, so let's let's ask a couple questions about that because I, like other listeners, I'm very interested in these statistics. So if a child uh, is at 12 or 13, like you talked about there in middle school, what can they expect if they can't read, they can't understand, and, and they can't understand their teachers because of literacy? What what essentially is potentially the impact for them at that at that age level and beyond? If they, if they have that so if we're talking about middle school students who are reading significantly below reading levels, so let's sort of jump back. One of the reasons states have third grade reading laws on the books is we know that third grade is really the place where there's a transition. If they're not reading fluently um, um, it, by third grade and they're not on grade level targets around comprehension, fluency, decoding, um, understanding text structure, you know, once you go past third grade, it, it shifts from teaching reading to using reading to learn. Right. And so when we think about by middle school, you know, you've got social studies, history, geography, you've got math, um, science, technology courses, um, certainly in literature and writing. But if you're not reading on grade level, you're going to be struggling with all of the subjects. And certainly by that grade level as well, kids you know, issues around identity, they start to feel stupid or disengaged. And, you know, if, if, if they haven't been able to be helped with reading by that point, they start to think there's something wrong with them and, and they're failing in their classes. So that's where, you know, we look at third grade and we can start to predict graduation um, expectations for students and the number of kids will be graduating. And so by middle school, the 12, 13, we've got whole cadres of students who've become disengaged, disenchanted, and really disenfranchised from the system because they're not even able to be successful in their other disciplines. So do they typically then leave school and try to find another alternative where they can succeed? Well, it depends on the community. Um, You know, some communities, um, you know, they have systems in place to really help and support kind of moving at least towards graduation. But that's where communities start to say, well, what does graduation mean if we're graduating kids who, you know, we've kept them in school and certainly getting a high school diploma is linked to higher wage earning potential. But, you know, this is where the business community is pretty passionate about this issue. We're graduating kids without the requisite mm-hmm. reading They're and literacy ready. skills to really be successful and to really pursue any kind of meaningful careers. I, um, spe- and so, you know, sp- it depends on the system. We certainly have large communities where, um, particularly um, if there's other opportunities for even low-skilled uh, employment, um, kids start dropping out to engage in that. We certainly have certainly some demographic categories, um, you know, where there's, you know, other alternatives for working in kind of low-paid farming uh, jobs or low-skilled potential where we do. But it's really not about whether they drop out or stay in, um, you know, correlations between, um, uh, you know, students in the juvenile detention system, and we've got you know, issues around, um, you know, kids finding other ways to feel belonging and feel engaged. Um, but it really isn't about whether they finish high school or not. It's whether they have successful opportunities, you know, for careers. It's not just about college. It's about careers. Let me just ask the question that I think a lot of people would ask. Reading and writing, the two fundamental things you need. Are you telling me that, that kindergartners and first graders and second graders, they're being passed on to the next 
level, grade level, and they can't, if they are not meeting those criteria of what they're supposed to be reading and writing by that point, how does that happen? So how does that happen? So there's a lot of pieces around this, and this is where third grade reading laws get into place. We know that um, kids kids learn um, at different developmental trajectories and paces. And so when we think about, for example, phonic skills, uh, we can break it up in terms of blends and digraphs and R-controlled vowels um, and vowel consonant E patterns and then developing some fluency with decoding single syllable and then multisyllabic words, really engaging in the comprehension studies and beginning writing. So when you think about, so, I mean, the question you posed is often the one that's sort of posed in a provocative way. It's like, how can you pass these kids if they mm-hmm. don't That's why I asked it, because this? I hear but that But it's sort of deciding, time. what does it mean to be a kindergartner? And, and honestly, nationally, the research on retention is really pretty, very, very clear, and it's also abysmal, that retaining a kid another year, if schools are not going to engage in different kinds of instructional practices, it only puts the kids still behind, but a year older. Mm-hmm. And so it's really about looking at the system and saying, what is it we need kids to know and be able to do, and what are the instructional practices that best support it? And how do we create a system, a K-3 through system in particular, that allows children to be uh, progressing in appropriate ways and when intervention is needed, to be providing that kind of intervention. Um, so providing that additional support, um, because certainly some kids may take longer, um, but it's not about saying, well, we just hope they pick it up, but a system might say, okay, we still got some weaknesses to shore up here, and so um, we're going to make sure that we provide very intensive and targeted interventions in the next year to make sure they make it. Got it. So um, there's one statistic <clears throat> that I had learned in my research that I think listeners will be interested in. And then I want to pivot, um, Kaylani, to basically how you've been addressing this and and how we can address it within a system context. So the statistic is that there are now a number of states, because of the high correlation between third grade reading scores and uh, crime, they uh, determine the number of prison cells that they will build based upon third grade reading scores. Oh, wow. it's, a, it's a direct correlation. Mm. That's not pervasive across the United States, but there are, uh, there are a few states that do that. So it's a, it's a big issue, and, and it's something that you know, we have to solve. So, Kehlani, it's, it's interesting. It's sort of like in your story, the first version of solving this is, you know, give me your kids, right, and, and, and I'll help them. Talk to us a little bit about what transpired there as you started from that point in trying to solve this challenge. Well, you know, I said I, I was a you know I was a middle school teacher, so this is something that often happens in schools. I'm certified K through eight, um, but you know, four days before school began, I found myself not a first and second grade teacher, but a middle school teacher. Um, and you know, and I had these students who were struggling. And when I was, um, you know, at the at the middle school level, the teachers were like, "Oh my goodness, if those elementary teachers had done their job, mm-hmm. we wouldn't be having these problems in middle school." And I'm mm-hmm. like, "Wait a minute, I was an elementary teacher." Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I think there's two things at play there. One is, you know, I can prepare a kid to be ready with third-grade standards, but that doesn't mean they can read an eighth-grade social studies textbook or an eighth-grade science textbook. All the way along, becoming on grade level at your grade just means you're prepared to now get instruction and support at the next grade. And so when I was a middle school teacher, I was really struggling to figure out what does it mean to be below grade level? What are, what are the demands as an 
a middle school uh, English teacher and social studies teacher. How do I support these kids if I feel like they can't even fluently read the text? Or what does it mean to, to struggle with comprehension? And so, you know, I, I sort of fell into a doctoral program, kept teaching, taking coursework, and my goal was how do I help these kids? And so, you know, the phrase I think I've said to you before, Ben, is, okay, give me your kids and let me help your I can help your kids. Right. But, you know, my passion is sort of bigger, okay, so I can help these kids here in these places. But how do we create, you know, systems where, like, all kids are helping? And so, you know, one door opens another door, and I started working with teachers and supporting teachers. And one of the real frustrations for me, though, is, you know, you work with a group of teachers, and they become very expert and skilled in supporting their group of students. And then you get a new principal who comes in who doesn't understand the approach that's been happening, or a teacher retires and a brand-new teacher comes in. And so the question is, how do you create systems, not just these teachers I'm working with, because then they're going to go into a fourth-grade classroom and maybe haven't worked with those teachers, um, and they're doing something different or don't know how to build on it. So, you know, really what I want to do is I want to invest in places where we can really build sustainable change. So, you know, where I am at my career, um, I certainly I, I tutor some kids here on the side. Um, I work in classrooms with teachers. Um, but I really invest my time in working with systems, so district systems, community systems, that are really committed to putting in place the organizational conditions, the collaborative practices that need to happen to really buttress and support those high-quality teaching practices. I mean, I think one of the things that's helpful is um, an image I often show is, you know, Hollywood likes to portray these sort of super teachers, and we invested a lot in this country in making sure we have high-quality teachers who meet certain standards, who have certain coursework, and we really think about teachers as sort of superheroes. We want superhero teachers, and, and I would say, well, yes, but we really want super systems. Mm -hmm. So it's not about that. having individual superheroes. We want a system that works collectively to really ensure high-quality teaching is happening in every classroom, that there's conversation and collaboration, that the conditions exist to ensure that teachers have the materials they need, the professional development they need, the resources, that we're using assessments appropriately. So I, I've been really invested in, really committed to creating super systems um, that really support high-quality teaching um, across the board. So um, that, for the listeners, is one of the reasons why Kehlani uh, and I connected, and ultimately she became a partner within SOAR, because that is what we do, is work on systems. So for those of you who have listened to the show before, and for those of you who have not, if you go to the leaderdialogue.com site, to the homepage, you will see something depicted as an organizational hierarchy of needs. And it is a systems approach to essentially addressing any problem. At the very top of the pyramid, you'll see the strategy. So you have to be clear what the problems are and what you're trying to solve. And you have to say no to things to be able to say yes to what you're going to focus on, your strategic priorities. Then at the very bottom of the pyramid, you have to have the engagement of the people that are participating. So as Dr. Dunsmore is talking about, the teachers have to be able to be engaged and work together around this strategic priority to solve it. And until that happens, you can't go to organizational effectiveness, which is really where leadership and processes come in and, and empower those, those teachers to be able to then drive customer value. In this case, the customer is the student, right? You're, you're trying to optimize the student's literacy, and that then drives all the results. So if you look on that organization hierarchy of need it is it's related and system science 
is similar to any science. It is, is predictable. It's specific. If you follow it, you get certain results. If you don't, you get negative results. Much like Dr. Dunsmore is talking about as it relates to literacy and education. I have a question. Um, because you've been a teacher, Dr. Dunsmore, how how does it work when you get uh, teachers to buy into this? Because I know teachers, my friends who are teachers say they feel like they're doing all they can do. And like you said, you get a new a principal um, and they sort of change everything. Some want more meetings, some want more testing, some want this and that. How do you get teachers to buy into this idea of this system will help you? Are, are they Are they eager for this? So I think one of the ways of thinking about this is, you know, it's really not about buy-in, it's about ownership. Um, yes. And so when I go into a system, I'm not working with the teachers, just with the teachers. I'm working with the leaders. You've got the district involvement, the leadership teams, um, the principals, the leaders. And we really want to come to what I call shared agreement. So we want to be able to come to shared agreement about really naming the problem and then come to shared agreements about the solutions and really focus on, you know, Ben talked about it in terms of being able to say no to things. What I see is, you know, there's teachers, they can get very disillusioned because there's 10 different initiatives happening and with not much follow-up and support. Right. Um, you know, there's not a clarity about naming what the problem is and naming the solution and then providing all the supports that go around it. I mean, I, I've... I was a teacher. I am a teacher. I'm actually teaching part-time in a school right now um, as part of um, some work this year. And, you know, teachers are struggling with, you know, I don't even have time to go to the bathroom. And I was worried that I would get, be able to get on this radio show and get out of the school and get on here. <laughs> and so it's not that people, um, I don't find that teachers resist just to resist. It's they want to really know that we're collectively owning this problem. We're not blaming. We're not shaming. We're owning the problem, and we're developing solutions that are really rooted in a deep understanding of what's going on, and then we're committed to providing the support. Um, you know, so that you know, when we say this is how we're going to approach something, we've collectively owned it. The, the, the district, the leadership, the building is committed to giving me time and space to build the expertise. I talk about it in terms of, you know, teachers are learners too. We need to create safe practice days so teachers can try new things, be supported in trying them. I mean, we often, you know, come up with a solution in schools and say, okay, here, go, try it, go. I'm not going to support you. I'm not going to coach you. I'm not going to make sure you have all the resources. I'm not going to give you the time. And then we wonder why things are failing. So, you know, I don't struggle with... Um, with getting buy-in because what we're working toward is building collective ownership and building their capacity as leaders to understand how to support teachers, as teachers to understand how to support students. So it's really about ownership and collective capacity building and really coming to those shared agreements about, you know, what good instruction looks like and how it's assessed. Yeah, and, and interestingly enough, Kaylani, we're going to talk more about this next week. Uh, as we get into a deep dive, is there are a lot of community and other factors that are also setting the stage for teachers to be able to be successful, right? So, for example, if a if a student is second language learner and they have a, a single parent home and that parent also doesn't speak English well and isn't able to read to them before they get to kindergarten, or if they don't have access to transportation to be able to get to pre-K type things, uh, or if they have food insecurity where they, you know, the, the real concern is just trying to have a meal, let alone learn how to read. All of those things are factors that then influence uh, the, 
the teacher, correct? Well, in the engagement, I would think, again, includes the parents or the grandparents or the community at large. That's bigger than just the teachers and the administrators of that school system. So right. it, it very multifaceted. Is that correct, Kaylani? Yeah, and I think that's one of the things I'm most excited about with, with working uh, with SOAR and SOAR's work moving forward with the, with the Baldrige Foundation and the Communities of Excellence. It's really recognizing that really to build, you know, these super superhero schools that I talked about, to build these, you know, schools of excellence, you really need a community of excellence. You know, we may always have poverty around us, but how are communities then tackling that and providing the support. I had a couple little kids this morning who were hungry, and I had them in their little reading group, and they're like, you know, I'm hungry. Can we have a snack? And it's really hard for them to focus if they're hungry. Mm-hmm. Think about that at a macro level. We have, we have kids who, who don't know that they don't have a home to go to. They're sleeping in cars, or they're sleeping in hotels, or they're sleeping in homeless shelters. They've got parents who are struggling to find work or taking, you know, I had, who are taking multiple buses and working multiple jobs just to try to you know, to provide food. They're making decisions. Do I pay the rent or do I, you know, do I have food? So when we think about, you know, these schools of excellence and we've got communities that say we want high quality literacy to happen, you know, I'm really excited about the communities of excellence and, and the fact that Baldridge is really saying, how can we take our framework to really understand and tackle these really critical issues that affect the ability of students to really become college and career ready with the high levels of literacy we expect? So in that regard, and we're going to start moving towards our summary for this show, and then we'll, we'll start to bring some of these things up for, for uh, next week. But um, whenever you're tackling a system issue, you have to have orchestrated action, right? So uh, we refer to it as a focus action feedback loop, right? So the focus is what we've been talking about. Like what are you trying to accomplish and zero in on that, um, and make sure you know you have clarity on the problem. Shared shared agreement. Name the problem. Name the solution. Go and agree it, on right? it. So and agree right. on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The next part is really challenging, which is dedicated action, and particularly once you um, are talking about it at a community level, because communities, by their very nature, are much more fragmented in terms of their ability to act. Right. There's a lot of constituents, and a lot of what happens in a community is through volunteers. Mm-hmm. So when you're trying to get dedicated orchestrated agile action project management skills to to make sure that you're actually accomplishing something it goes up by order of magnitude and complexity when you're in the the community and then the feedback is is basically getting the information back as you're doing dedicated action so that you can learn and adjust right so for example when i was a child i played tennis and uh, played tennis in high school and college and across the street from my uh, house was a church that had a nice brick wall without a window (laughs) so I'd go over there and hit tennis balls hour after hour right Mm -hmm. so what I was doing is I was focusing on forehands backhand skill sets I was uh, it was dedicated action and the feedback was did it hit where I wanted to or not and I would learn and adjust right it's what every athlete and every team does and every organization ultimately or jurisdiction has to do that but there's a lot of complexity in that um, and we're going to talk about that um, next week. So just to summarize this week, the topic we're talking about is the challenge of literacy. <clears throat> and our guest is Dr. Kaylani Dunsmore. Um, she is one of the advisors now of uh, the Leader Dialogue radio show team and is a partner within SOAR Vision Group. You can see her, her bio 
on the Leader Dialogue site. And next week, when we go into a deep dive, we're going to unpack that and talk more about what it, what's necessary to be able to actually accomplish uh, effective outcomes. And maybe, Kehlani, if you could just kind of, in a quick summary, what are sort of the core characteristics of systems so that the listeners are thinking about that as we then unpack next week? So I think we want to think about coherent, you know, they're aligned, they're integrated. We don't have silos of expertise. We don't have multiple initiatives. We're very clear. We're engaging in progress monitoring, and we're really thinking about sustainability. And so that's why I always say we're not, you know, let's not talk about, like, the super students or the super teachers. Let's talk about the system we want to create that will really support these these excellence that we're pursuing. Yeah. So exciting, and I love hearing that you're still uh, teaching at the same time because it seems like you have a real world, you know, real world experience, and you've just gone above and beyond. So we're looking forward to next week and talking about this more. Thank you so much to Dr. Dunsmore for joining us, and thanks to our listeners for joining us on Leader Dialogue, brought to you by the Soar Vision Group and the Baldridge Foundation. Remember, you can listen to a new live show every Friday at one o'clock Eastern Time. You can also visit us on businessradiox.com on the Gwinnett Studio, and Leader Dialogue is there. And also, as we mentioned, leaderdialogue.com slash podcast then you can pick up all our podcasts they're now listed by topic so that's really helpful depending on what sort of business you're in on behalf of ben lisa and our producer mike i'm duffy dixon join us next time on leader dialogue here on business radio x 